You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. So let's start reading in verse 1. Um, again, we, uh, over the past couple of months, have been covering um, a chapter a week through the book of Romans, just doing a big, quick overview of what Paul teaches um, concerning the gospel, concerning the faith that uh, Jude calls us to contend for. So we recently had studied through the book of Jude, talked about contending for the faith, and now we've come to the book of Romans to better understand that faith that we're called to contend for. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the written word this morning that we can read study, and meditate on together. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to us this morning. God, help us to better understand uh, what you desire for us in light of your mercies that we've seen all through the book of Romans. Father, as we examine this passage today, I pray that we would examine it in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, that your return would motivate us to holy living that we would see the urgency, we would see that time is short, and that the need is great for the gospel to be communicated to the ends of the earth. So, Father, I pray that you would challenge us this morning, challenge us in our perspective. Father, I pray that you would lead us to sanctification in the areas that we're going to look at today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've worked through the first 12 chapters, and last week marked kind of a transition period where chapters 1 through 11 were heavy on doctrine, heavy on theology, heavy on us understanding who God is, who man is, man's relationship to God because of sin, Christ and the work that Christ accomplishes, and how Christ rescues us back to God. 
We've seen um, the assurance that comes from the gospel that, that nothing can separate us from God's love. So once we're saved, we are sealed until Jesus Christ returns, that um, our salvation is based on the work of Christ. It's never been based on our work. And so uh, Christ saves us. He frees us from sin. We looked at the fact that when we're Christians, we yield ourselves now to righteous purposes. Um, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can find victory over sin as we wait for Jesus to return, And then Romans 12 kind of starts the heavy application section. In light of all this truth, in light of what the gospel communicates to us, here's now how we live as believers. And so last week we looked at our responsibility to consecrate our bodies and renew our minds. That we have to submit our minds to start thinking differently if we ever hope to live differently. And I challenged you last week with this statement. While being in the word does not guarantee sanctification... Not being in the Word all but guarantees there won't be sanctification. So just because you get up every morning and have a five, ten minute devotional life doesn't guarantee you that you're going to be more holy. But what is guaranteed is that if you're not in the Word, if you're not spending time with Christ, if you're not feasting on the Word, you will not experience sanctification. You will not experience growth in your faith. That that the Word is necessary uh, the Holy Spirit using God's word, it's necessary if we're going to uh, become more like Christ and become less sinful, which is how we've defined sanctification. It's becoming more like Christ, being conformed to his image, and becoming less sinful in our daily lives. We saw last week that ultimately we are to walk in humility. We saw how uh, we're a part of the body of Christ. We've been gifted differently. We're to use those gifts. Um, we're to... Uh, rejoice in the midst of suffering, we're to be in prayer about that, we're to be hospitable towards others. The last section of chapter 12 uh, highlights the fact that we're to interact with our enemies differently now that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, rather than seeking vengeance and rather than celebrating in vengeance. Instead, we're to, we're to love our enemies, we're to forgive our enemies, we're to serve our enemies. Um, and that ultimately, through that type of behavior, we will win our enemies that our enemies will be drawn to repentance, that in, in an effort to be our enemies, they find that we will not act like an enemy towards them. Instead, we act like a friend, and we end up winning those people to Christ. He closes that chapter, do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we saw that the Christian has responsibilities in how he interacts with his enemies, and then Paul brings us to chapter 13 today and gives us insight about how we are to interact with our government or to interact with the state, specifically the governing authorities that have been placed over us. There was tension in the early church that was rising as people were coming to Christ. There was um, this mindset now where Caesar... While he was over the Roman Empire, he was not being yielded to as Lord any longer by these believers. Instead, Jesus was being viewed as Lord. He was the Messiah. He was their Savior. He was their King. And we find from the book of Acts that there was tension mounting between believers and the government, believers and the state. In Acts 17, 7, this goes back to the beginnings of the church at Thessalonica, which we looked at when we first planted our church. And verse 7, it says, And Jason received them, talking about Paul and his friends, and they are, um, it says they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. 
So Jason had taken in Paul and his companions, and people in the city were outraged over some of the things they were hearing. And so they brought it to the city authorities, and they said, look, here's the issue. These people are teaching people that Caesar isn't Lord, that there's another Lord, that Jesus is the supreme ruler, that Jesus is the supreme being. And it says the city authorities were disturbed by this. In Acts 18.2, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. You had Jews and Christians that were in tension with each other. From the Roman perspective, it was all Jew. It was just a... It was a a disagreement over theology. So the Romans didn't necessarily distinguish between Judaism and Christianity. While we see a distinctive break, we see them as being contrarily different, that one rejects the Messiah, one accepts the Messiah. From the Roman perspective, from the outside perspective, it was all Judaism. And this tension that was rising in Rome, the tension that had existed with Christ and, and the, the Pharisees wanting to crucify Christ, uh, the, the Romans were tired of it, and they had actually issued and told the Jews to get out of Rome. We don't want to deal with this anymore. So there was tension that was rising in that, in that day and age, Christians and how the Christians were to relate to the state. And so what Paul gives us this morning in Romans 13 was relevant then, and it continues to be relevant today in how we're to interact with our society and our government. Chapter 13 reminds us of God's temporary answer for dealing with wrongdoing until God enacts vengeance at the second coming. Remember, he closes the last passage with, if somebody's doing something unjust to you, somebody's your enemy, somebody's treating you wrongly, don't seek to get vengeance from them. Don't seek to retaliate. So he gives them that teaching. Now the fear would then set in is, well, our world's going to plummet into chaos. We, we, if, we're, if, if nobody's... Uh, if nobody's handling injustice, if nobody is handling wrongdoing, and we just keep delaying it until Jesus comes back, think about the utter chaos of people just getting away with whatever they want to do. Paul draws the Christian's attention back to the role of the government. He says, look, you live out your life in love. You live out your life in service to your enemies. In the back of your mind, knowing that ultimately God's going to bring vengeance, God's going to deal with sin, but also in the temporary here and now, government has been set up and established <coughs> to bring judgment and punishment where needed. And so it's an encouragement to the believer <coughs> that while he can't bring uh, vengeance and judgment, the government can. God has established government in his physical absence to oversee justice and goodness while punishing evil. We also... I need to understand that God has ordained the government. God has ordained that structure. <coughs> so God has really three ordained uh, structures that God has created for a healthy society. He's given us the church. He's given us government. Does anybody know what the third one would be? Structures within society that help create a healthy society. Government, church, and family. Okay? When those three things are working properly and working together and not doing what the other one should be doing, then we have healthy societies. <clears throat> when, when man and woman are marrying, having kids, uh, raising them within the context of the church, the government's there to protect them from injustice, there to, um, to oversee that, that protection from evil. 
When those three things are functioning properly, we have healthy societies. Society begins to break down when those three things are not functioning properly. So God has ordained those institutions um, to function in such a way that we have healthy societies. What we find in this chapter is that submitting to civil government demonstrates our level of submission to God. What do I mean by that? What Paul wants us to understand is, is that when we submit to government, it is a practical way for others to see what submission to God looks like. God has called us to submit to government, knowing the Christian knows that ultimately God is in control. When we submit to government, we are giving people a practical picture of what it looks like to submit to God and his authority. It also gives us a training ground because we submit to government that we don't always agree with, right? Government does things that that maybe we wouldn't do if we were in that position. But that a lot of times is true about God as well. That a lot of times we're called to submit to God and his plans and his ways, trusting that good will be worked out in those situations. But a lot of times from our perspective, we would do things differently than God does. And so as we train ourselves to submit to government, even though we don't agree with maybe what the government is doing, we're teaching ourselves to submit to God in the midst of trials and tribulations when things are happening that we would not choose to happen that way. Paul gives us that command here. He says, you've got to submit to the authorities that are placed over you. So in your notes, we start off by seeing the term subjection. (coughs) Subjection, the Christian's duty towards the state. The Christian's duty towards the state. Now, I'm thankful that God doesn't just, or Paul doesn't just communicate to us that we need to submit to the governing authorities without giving us reasons and logic behind it. So, so Paul tells us that we're to submit to governing authorities, but then he gives us the reasons for that, uh, that command. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. First in your notes there, we submit to the state because of divine origin. Divine origin. Any power that anyone on earth has originates from God's power and is subject to God's power. Any power that anyone on earth has originates from God's power and is subject to God's power. He says, there is no authority except from God. This is something that Nebuchadnezzar learned in the Old Testament, that while he saw himself as a powerful leader, a powerful individual, he was ultimately brought to the understanding that he had no power without God first giving him that power. In Daniel chapter 4, You'll remember that God judged Nebuchadnezzar in the area of humility and pride by bringing him low. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, it says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This was Daniel communicating to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what you're going to learn in this situation is that God has the power, not you. Jesus communicates this 
in John 19 to Pilate. Pilate wants to throw around his weight and show off in front of Jesus, and Jesus reminds him that ultimately he's not in control of the situation. In verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus says, you don't have authority over me. The only authority that you have has been given to you by my Father. So ultimately, power that's, that's given to rulers here on this earth has been given to them by God. So there's divine origin there. Why do we submit to authorities placed over us? Because they have power, and their power comes from the all-powerful. And that's part of the reason that we're to submit to their power. Secondly, any power that has been placed into leadership has been placed there for God's sovereign plan. Look what else Paul says. Those that exist have been instituted by God. So not only are they given power by God, they're placed into positions of power. So think about some of the world leaders that have, that have come through the ages. They had power in the sense that they were smart men. They had, they had leadership abilities that was given to them by God, but those, those powerful abilities were not wasted. God instituted them into positions of authority to use that power. So the power they have, the abilities they have come from God, and then the fact that they're in a position of authority, that position comes from God. And it's been put there, or they have been put there, for God's sovereign plan. God is omniscient, and he's omnipotent. So, so he remains all-knowing, so God puts everyone into power that's in power. He knew who they would be in that position of power, and he possesses the power to overrule anything that they want to do. But we know already from Romans 9 that God had purposes for, for putting Pharaoh into power, right? Pharaoh, who, who kept the children of Israel under bondage, who would not yield himself to God when God said, came and said, let my people go. God had Pharaoh in a position of power. God communicates to us in Romans 9 why he had him in power, so that God could show his power over Pharaoh. So God had raised up Pharaoh for a purpose, to show his own power to the nations. So God always has a plan in place for why he allows uh, rulers to, to, to be put into power. Rulers like Hitler, rulers like Assam, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, um, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. These guys that have, that have power, that have been put into positions of power, have been placed there by God for sovereign purposes that we may not fully always understand. But what we can recognize, what we can note, is that their power comes from God. Their position comes from God. And we have to keep in mind the context of when this was written. Paul writes to a church in Rome during the height of the Roman Empire when there were emperors who were rising to power who hated Christianity and were bringing persecution upon these Christians. That's the context that it's written in. So no matter how bad we may perceive our government to ever get here in the United States, it will never rival what we see happening here in the context that this was originally written. And Paul tells these Christians to submit to the power placed over them because it comes from God. The implication for us is that our subjection to authority placed over us is a sign of our trust in a sovereign God. Our subjection to authority placed over us is a sign of our trust in a sovereign God. So when we 
submit ourselves to the government that's been placed over us, we're ultimately showing that we're not trusting in this government because most likely we disagree with it. Instead, we're showing that we we are uh, trusting in a God who's more powerful than this government, who ultimately oversees this government. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Paul wants to guard, uh, and and Peter doing the same thing here, Paul wants to guard against the Christian developing a mindset that, okay, this isn't my home, this isn't my country, I've got a heavenly land that I'm waiting for, so I don't have to obey what's going on here. I serve a different king, I don't serve this president, I don't serve this, this regime here, so I'm free from it. And while that's communicated in Scripture that this isn't our home, that we have something coming that, that we wait for, Paul calls us to, to be mindful of the fact that while you're here, be submissive. Put to, put, to, to put to rest the ignorant talk of foolish people that would criticize the gospel, that would criticize the church as being negative for society, that, that is unwilling to submit to society and the government placed over it. Second implication, to reject authority over us is to reject God. That's the, that's the startling truth that's communicated here by Paul. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. To reject authority is to reject God and places us under judgment. There's two forms of judgment. We're going to be judged by the civil government that we're disobeying, right? So if I'm a believer and I say, you know what, I'm waiting for a heavenly kingdom, I'm waiting for a different king, I'm going to speed, you know, break the speed limit, then I'm going to be punished by the civil government. I'm going to have to pay for that disobedience. There's also the indication here that there may be judgment that comes from God towards our actions as well. So whether it's from the civil government, whether it's from God, the warning here is that to not submit to our governing authorities brings judgment upon the believer. The second reason that we submit to the authorities placed over us, not just for divine origin, but for divine purpose. Divine purpose. Government is used by God for his service. He says in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Government is used by God for his service. And what's great about God's sovereignty and his omniscience and his omnipotence is that the leader does not have to submit to God to be used for his purposes, right? So it's not contingent on if we have a good leader in power, then this is all working out for our good. No. Paul says leadership, government has been put in place for your good. They are servants of God. Whether they submit to God or not, they're being used for his purposes. We've already referenced Pharaoh. Pharaoh was used by God 
for God's glory, even though Pharaoh would have never thought that being the purpose of his life. He would have seen himself as an enemy of God, as contrary to God's plans, and yet he fell right into the midst of God's plans. Government is used by God for his service. They are his servants. Secondly, government is given for good reason. The government is put in place for good reason, Paul tells us. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The reason for us submitting to the government is that the government is there for good. It's to encourage righteousness and repress crime. It's how God brings vengeance. He takes the responsibility out of our individual hands. Remember in chapter 12, don't seek vengeance as a believer. Instead, trust God to bring the vengeance. And then he shows us in chapter 13, this is how God brings vengeance. God brings vengeance through the government. Governmental leaders have been put in place to protect you as the believer, to protect you as an individual of society. He takes the responsibility out of the individual's hands and puts it in the hands of rightful authorities that are tasked with this responsibility. The implication for us, two reasons here. There's external pressure for obedience. Look what he says. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there's an external pressure there. Why should we obey the government? To avoid punishment, to avoid wrath. But there's also an internal pressure for obedience. We are to obey to satisfy our conscience. Our conviction leads us to obedience. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul, or Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, reminds us that if we're going to suffer, let us make sure that we are suffering for righteous purposes. Make sure that our behavior does not detract from the gospel because we're being disobedient to the government. 1 Peter 4 verse 15 says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Paul says if you're going to suffer, if the government is going to apply pressure to you, make sure that it is based on righteous living. Make sure it's based on your name as a Christian. You seeking to live for Christ like what was happening in the book of Acts, the government authorities were mad because they were saying Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. He says, make sure that the pressure from the government is being applied to you, not because you're breaking civil laws, but because you're following Christ. That internal pressure, our, our conscience leads us to that type of behavior. And then lastly in this section, divine obligation. We have a divine origin reason for submitting to the authorities placed over us. God has put them there. There's a divine purpose that God has, so we can submit to that. And then lastly, our divine obligation. What does it look like for us to submit to our government? Are we free to interpret that however we want to? Is it just obeying laws? And Paul tells us no. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. 
divine obligation. Number one, as Christians, we are obligated to pay taxes to governmental authorities. He says pay taxes. He says pay to what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. He's highlighting two different types of taxes. For our day and age, it would be our income and property taxes that need to be paid as well as sales tax. So when we go out and make purchases, we see that, that original cost that was on the, the price tag go up because of taxes. And while we are prone to hate that, we're prone to reject that, we're prone to not uh, want to pay that extra fee, Paul reminds us the government can't function, the government can't accomplish these good things without being paid for it. And so there has to be revenue that's generated. And so he wants us to I don't think he's necessarily calling us to rejoice in, in, in the time of tax season. Um, but I do think he wants us to uh, be content with the fact that by doing this, we are receiving what is hopefully the good services that are promised through this structure within society. You can be like me and you can just pay extra taxes throughout the year so that tax season becomes a time of rejoicing when you get a big return on your taxes, and then you get to go out and buy something that you've been saving up for in your mind thinking, I'm going to get a big chunk of money back at tax season. Um, that's how I battle this, and that's how I make tax season a time of rejoicing is that I just have them take out more than they're supposed to, so in the end, I feel like I win, and they pay, they pay me to live here. That's how I handle it. Um, the, 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 the encouragement here to the Christian is to be honest in his financial dealings. Think about the moral failures that get highlighted so often in Christian culture, specifically in leadership in the Christian culture. It typically falls into one of two categories. It's either a sexual failure or a a financial failure. There's some type of mishandling of the finances or mishandling of the sexual relationship that typically leads pastors and leadership into failure. So this is a strong indication here that the Christian has to have the right perspective when it comes to government and taxes to guard and protect himself against falling. Because this is a a major area where the enemy attacks and the enemy seeks to find victory in the area of our financial dealings. Paul says, pay what is owed to them, recognizing that it brings to us these things that we need, this, this protection, this, this good to society. And the comfort here, the reminder here, is that Jesus has done this perfectly for us already. When we talk about Jesus living the perfect life, Jesus was perfect all through his years here on this earth. He was specifically perfect in the area of taxes, right? We have two indications in Matthew 17 and in Luke chapter 20. Both of these times when the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, trying to find something to hold against Jesus, and they brought the the issue of taxes to Jesus. And Jesus, falling right in line with society, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Tells Peter, go get the coin out of the fish's mouth so that we can pay what we owe to society. Think again about the context that this is written in. This is written in a time when the taxes were far more corrupt than what we experience today. This is where people just knocked on your door and said, this is what we owe. This is what your family owes. It's how Zacchaeus became a millionaire, right? Because he was distorting the process and there weren't really checks and balances in place to make sure that you were guarded and protected from it. Zacchaeus ends up giving all this money away because he's made all this money in, in mishandlings 
of people's taxes. And yet in the midst of that corruption, Jesus says, pay your taxes. Paul says, pay your taxes. Be honest about it. Do what's right. Fulfill your obligations to society. As a believer, we, we adorn the gospel by being good citizens and paying what we're obligated to pay. As Christians, we're obligated to honor, respect, and submit to governmental authorities. That's our obligation. That's our responsibility. That's our job. Look at what happens in Acts 23. Paul's being persecuted. In Acts 23, verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? So there's a disagreement here. Paul says, I'm innocent, basically. Like, I haven't done anything wrong. And Ananias orders him to be slapped. Strike him upside the mouth. And then Paul fires back verbally. He retaliates verbally. He says, how dare you do this to me? This is wrong. This is not just behavior towards me. And everybody's kind of in shock because what they realize is, is that Paul has just spoken against the high priest. Verse 5, Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Notice Paul doesn't justify what he did. In fact, Paul seems very humiliated over the fact that he didn't realize who he was speaking against. Whether this was due to bad eyesight at this day and age in Paul's life or what, he doesn't realize that this individual is the high priest. Maybe he's just not familiar that Ananias has become the high priest, but regardless, he becomes very concerned about his behavior here. Is he right in his behavior? Is he right, at least from a right and wrong perspective, about injustice happening? Yes. He's, he's obeying God and being persecuted for it. But what he holds himself to is a standard of, I'm not to speak against my leadership that's placed over me, even when they're wrong. And that has big indications for us and how we relate to our government because the tendency in our culture, and we're allowed to do this, whereas in some cultures you would be, um, you would be arrested for it, we are allowed we're allowed to have TV shows where people come on and bicker and complain about our governmental leaders. And it becomes the norm. And, and, and for Christians, we begin to participate in this. We begin to use this as a point of conversation at work to criticize and to complain and to show dishonor and disrespect towards those that have been placed over us. Paul's an example here. Even when the government, the authorities that are placed over us are dead wrong, Paul says, I have no right to show you disrespect. I was disrespectful to you, and I am sorry because I did not realize who you were. Instead, we're commanded in Scripture to be prayerful over those that are placed over us. The implication, a Christian is responsible to uphold the government in prayer. 
not berate them with jokes, ridicule, and complaints. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why do we pray for our leadership? Why do we not berate them with jokes and ridicule? It goes back to the gospel. We lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. We want to be attractive to those that we live in society with. We don't want our actions to take away from the gospel change that we say has happened in our life. The reminder here is that we're to submit to these governing authorities, whether we agree or disagree with them or not. We're called to submit, to be in subjection to them, to pay taxes to them, to be prayerful over them versus showing dishonor to them. When leaders fail to rightfully fulfill their purposes, we're free to obey God first. We know this in in Scripture. In Acts 4 and in Acts 5, the early church founders were being told not to talk about the gospel, to shut their mouths. And we know that Peter and those communicated to the officials, look, you can determine whether this is right or wrong, but we're not going to stop doing this. We're, We're called to obey God first, not man. So when we have those incidences where someone's put into authority and they're not submitting themselves to God and they then call us to be disobedient to God, obviously the case is that we're to obey God. We see this with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in Scripture, that governmental authorities were calling them to be disobedient to God. They submit themselves first to God. The midwives, the Jewish midwives, when Moses was born, were being told to kill the babies, and they were not submitting themselves to that. Instead, they were sparing the baby boys. So we know there are times when we're called to be disobedient to our government, but those, especially in our country, are going to be very few and far between. Very few and far between. Instead, the the standard practice is going to be that we're to submit to our governing authorities, even in our disagreements, and we're to pay taxes and to pay honor to these individuals that God has placed over us and that who God has given authority to. God doesn't make mistakes when he does that. Ultimately, we're called to obey laws, pay taxes, and respect our authorities. The second section here deals with love. Love, the Christian's duty towards citizens of the state. So we've seen how to relate to the government. Now Paul gives us a commission about how to interact with those that live in our government, those that are citizens of our society. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We are indebted to love. We should never assume an obligation that we cannot be reasonably sure that we can pay. Now, some people would want to take this and say that Paul's saying, oh, no one anything except for love, meaning that a Christian should never be in debt ever, that a Christian should pay cash for everything, and that if he's ever in debt to somebody beyond love, that he's violated this. I think the better principle that comes out of this is that a Christian should never take on financial responsibility that he cannot be assured of being able to pay. That there are smart financial decisions that can be made where it may cause you to be in a position where you owe money, but you're in a position where you're paying that money back as well. Uh, For most of us, it's unrealistic to pay cash for a house. 
right? Like most of us will never be in a financial situation where we can just pay up front everything for a house. Most of us in here are in debt to a mortgage company for our house. But it's what a lot of consumers would call smart debt in the sense that most of us, if necessary, could turn our house in, could turn around and sell it and pay off the debt pretty quickly. I do think that there are smart financial principles that come out of this passage. But I think ultimately what's being highlighted here is that we never pay off this debt of love towards those around us. That we are indebted to love those and we never pay it off. And ultimately we find that when we're faithful to love, we are being faithful to obey. So not only are we indebted to love, we are obedient by love. This is verified by the Old Testament laws. Paul says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul uses the Old Testament laws to verify what he's saying. He says, if you want to keep those laws that were given in the Old Testament, talking to Jewish people, then you simply need to love those around you. By loving those around you, you will fulfill these laws. Because breaking these laws involves prioritizing yourself over others. Think about the ones that he highlights here. Adultery. You're you're highlighting your own needs over the needs of either your spouse or somebody else's spouse. Murder. Stealing. You're taking into account your needs versus somebody else's needs. Coveting. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This truth is communicated by Christ as well in Matthew 22. It can also be verified by logic. Paul says in verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul says on the basis that love doesn't do wrong, we can be safe in the fact that if we are loving those around us, then we are being obedient to what Christ has called us to. And then the last section, wakefulness. So there's subjection that we see. We submit ourselves to the authorities placed over us. We love those around us. And then Paul calls us to be awake, to be wakeful as we wait for Jesus to return. It's the Christian's duty in light of the coming Lord. And the encouragement too here is that the perfect government is coming as well. That in the midst of us submitting ourselves to governing authorities, we have the hope and comfort that the perfect government is coming with the perfect governing authority. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. There needs to be an awareness about the time. Paul calls us to watch vigilantly. He says, wake up, stop sleeping. The times are changing. Salvation is close. He says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's talking about that final salvation, that new body salvation, that glorification that happens when Jesus returns. He says, wake up, the time is near. There's no more time for sleeping. It's that time in the morning where you're laying in bed and the the alarm clock's going off and you're calculating how long you can stay in bed. How much time do you actually have to have to get in the shower, get your clothes on, eat breakfast, and get out the door to work? I think we've told you before, my roommates hated me in college because I would always set my alarm way too early just so I could go back to sleep. So 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, alarm would start going off, and I would love to just go over there and turn it off and say, it's not time to get up, it's time to go back to bed. 
I don't like the alarm clock, and I don't, I, I'll hit snooze as long as I can, as long as I can, and I'll calculate how long do I need, how much time do I actually need to fulfill my responsibilities. And Paul's saying, the time is up. You don't have time to hit the snooze button anymore. It's time to be awake. It's time to be about the business that God has communicated to us to fulfill. He says, wake up. Salvation is near. There are things that must be done. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So secondly, there's an awareness about our clothing. We're to walk virtuously. He says, put off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. So there's a change of clothing here. Whereas before, as unbelievers were clothed in works of darkness, he says, cast those things off and instead put on the armor of light. Walk like it's daytime. Put away nighttime activities, things that are done in secret. Think about the things that he lists off here in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I think it's not coincidence here that a lot of these activities that he highlights are typically done at night when our awareness is down. These are things that are, that are characteristic of the night, things that are done in secret. Even in our society, it's kind of looked down upon to be drunk during the daytime. The perspective is there are things to be done during the daytime, but at night is the time to kick back. At night is the time to relax. At, time, at night is the time to let yourself go. So Paul's highlighting the fact that it's no longer nighttime anymore. The morning star has come. Day is breaking. Christ is coming. And the appeal then is to, uh, to be uh, diligent, to be urgent about the things that we're called to do. Lastly, there's an awareness about our activity. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're to war valiantly. He calls us to be at war with our flesh. We're to have that armor of light on. We're to make no provision for the flesh. And I want us to, to kind of close by spending some time meditating on this passage right here. Um, because I think all of it culminates here with if we're going to do the things that are listed here, if we're going to be subjected to our authorities, if we're going to love those around us, if we're going to be anxiously waiting for Christ to return and being, around, being about daytime activities versus nighttime activities, it all goes back to us putting on Christ and not making provision for the flesh. Not making provision for the flesh. Now, I guess from a guy's perspective, it, it's, it's easy to just read this and, and, and strictly think in terms of sexual protection, okay? I'm not going to put myself in a situation to where any fleshly desires would be gratified. But this is far bigger than just that issue. This, this speaks to everyone, that there is to be a mindset where we put Christ on and we don't seek to gratify the desires of the flesh, and what I was thinking as I was studying this passage and just thinking, well, what does it look like for me to not make provision for the flesh? And what I got to thinking is, is that I don't actively, I don't actively a lot of times make provision for the flesh. That's just what happens if I'm not being proactive to put on Christ. 
If I don't proactively put on Christ, I'm going to make provision for the flesh. I don't typically do a lot of active things to make provision for the flesh. It's just what happens. It's what naturally happens. If I'm just letting myself go and not seeking to walk in the Spirit, I'm going to walk in the flesh because there's not really any middle ground. You either walk in the Spirit or you walk in the flesh. So if I'm not actively trying to put on Christ, then I'm going to gratify the desires of my flesh, and I'm going to make provision for the flesh. And that can be big things. That can be small things. Um, I've challenged the guys in our church in the area of lust. If you want to battle this, if you want to make no provision for this, then meet me on Wednesday mornings at 6 o'clock for a time of prayer and a time of encouragement and a time of accountability. I want those guys to wake up early, earlier than maybe they have to on some days, so that they're communicating to themselves, I'm not going to make provision for the flesh. That's, that's a bigger issue. There are other smaller issues in my life that I've sought to make no provision for the flesh. Uh, when Lauren and I were living in the apartment in Griffin, we were starting the process of thinking about, okay, we're going to buy a house. Um, and Lauren and I got really hooked on the HGTV network and watching all these house shows, houses being sold. Um, I mean, I just ate it up. I mean, I just love seeing couples go into houses, and we're going to go three houses today, and we're going to pick which one we're going to buy today, and we're going to highlight the positives and the negatives. And we would watch these shows all the time. And I, I think it was very educational for us as we sought to buy a house. I mean, there were things that we talked about. Hey, let's make sure we look for this, because remember that one couple that found this in that one house they were looking for? So, like, it really, it really did help us in the process. Um, I don't know that I've watched one of those shows since we bought a house, and, and that's intentional, um, because I know that I am prone to struggle with discontentment if I'm not careful, and I know that it would be... Um, I would be making provision for my flesh if I sat down and exposed myself to houses that I don't have the opportunity to buy right now. Like those shows gave me an idea of the type of house we wanted to buy. Our house isn't perfect. You know, every time we have a kid, I start talking to Lauren. I don't know how, longer we, how much longer we can stay here because our house is filling up and we don't have room for another kid kind of thing. If I watch those shows, it would only breed more discontentment in my life. And that may sound like a silly are you serious? Like you don't watch that because, of, no, like I don't watch those shows because I want to be content with what God has given me. I don't want to constantly expose myself to what I don't have. And so that's a step that I've taken in my life. I just don't watch these shows. I just breeze right by them right now when I'm looking for something to watch on TV. I don't want to make provision for my flesh in that area. So my challenge to you guys as we kind of come out of chapter 13 is for you to spend some time meditating on what does it look like for you to be making provision for your flesh? What are some areas in your life that maybe you need to combat against and say, okay, I, I need to cut some of this stuff out because what I find is that it does feed my flesh. It, it does increase desires and attitudes in, in my life that, that aren't appropriate. Now, granted, I don't have much interest in um, uh, governmental type stuff anyways, but I know that if I were one to watch Fox News or CNN constantly, I would be guilty of, of Romans 13 all the time. Like I would get sucked into the points of disagreement and the points of complaint about our government. So I just, again, I don't have much interest in it anyways, but I just stay away from it because what I find is that the majority of the time on those shows is, is bent towards criticizing the governmental authorities placed over us. So I don't make provision for my flesh in that area. Um, but like I said, 
most of the time, I don't have to make provision for my flesh. My flesh is going to feast on what's around it, regardless of what I'm doing. The way that I don't make provision for my flesh is I make provision for Christ. If I'm going to put on Christ, then I do have to make provision for that. I don't naturally find myself in the Word, right? Like my schedule would not allow me to just wake up and say, you know what, I don't have anything to do for the next four, five, six hours. I'm just going to read my Bible, right? Like I have to carve out provisional time for that, right? So I, I hear Lauren on the phone, hey, we can't, well, we can't do that Saturday morning. Adam's going to be studying. Like, that, like Lauren knows that. Somebody may call us and say, hey, um, do y'all want to do something this Wednesday night? No, Adam has accountability. Like I make provision for Christ, and my family understands that. And Lauren's very good about working with that provision. She knows there are times where we can't do something because I've made provision for Christ in that time frame. So my challenge to you is to both spend some time meditating. What does it look like for you to be making provision for your flesh? But also, are you making provision for Christ? Are you making that provisional time to put on Christ? Because that doesn't happen naturally. It's not going to happen naturally. Just like we said earlier, you will not experience sanctification without the word. It's not a guarantee that just open. The, the Bible's not magical in the sense that if I just read it with the wrong attitude, it's going to change me. But what is true is that if you're not in the word, you're not going to be changed. There has to be provision made to put Christ on. And so my challenge to you as we leave today, are you making provision for the flesh are you making provision for Christ? And what does that look like specifically for you in your context? A couple other closing thoughts real quick that maybe aren't, uh, you know, this whole chapter's application, so it's hard to really come up with, all right, here's the points of application. But a couple of thoughts that I had just in closing that I wanted to leave you that maybe don't jump right out at you in an initial reading. Uh, number one, remember that a Christian lives out of love not justice. Leave the justice to the government. You know, it's just kind of a, an overall reminder that as a believer, we don't need to feel compelled to fight for our rights and fight for vengeance and fight for justice in our life. We can leave that to the government. Remember, we said that, that Paul's very specific about the, the role of lawsuits within the life of a Christian, that they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be there, that we have a trust in a higher king who, who provides for us so we can walk in love, we can walk in love towards our enemies rather than living for justice. We can let the justice aspect be handled by the government. And then secondly, for those of us that are in leadership positions, um, and for those of you that are, that are parents, moms and dads, I would consider that a leadership position with this principle. As leaders, be faithful to honor good and not just punish bad behavior. You know, he, he, he highlights the fact that governmental leaders are put in place to encourage righteousness and also to punish evil, to punish bad behavior. But I know for me sometimes, I'm, especially as a principal, like I'm far more prone to focus on bad behavior and punish the bad behavior. And something that I'm wanting to change at Trinity is that we are more faithful to encourage righteousness and highlight good behavior and not like in a, in a silly, cheesy way where a kid feels like, man, I'm going to get picked on because this got highlighted in my life. But to be the type of people that, that um, are, are practicing affirmation in the life of other people, when, when people are doing the right thing, 
when our kids are doing the right thing, that, that, is, that, that, that attention is drawn to that just as much as when there's misbehavior happening. And, and so that may not be a, a point that's applicable for everybody in this room, but I know that's something that specifically kind of stood out to me, being someone who is a governing authority, being that 250 middle school students are underneath me and there's teachers that are underneath me, uh, wanting to fulfill my role in that position, to be someone who encourages righteousness and represses bad behavior um, based on the leadership that I provide. So just two closing thoughts in addition to all the application that's kind of seen in Romans chapter 13. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to take any questions or thoughts that you guys might still have about this chapter. Father, we thank you for uh, the, the assurance and the reminders that you are completely in control um, God, specifically in an area uh, of government where we're so prone to question and to criticize and to complain and to rely on our wisdom versus the wisdom of those that are put in place above us. Father, I thank you for the reminders that you've given us here in Scripture that the power that people have come from you, that their positions of authority come from you, that you place people in authority for your plans, for your purposes. And God, I pray that that would lead us to react properly and rightly towards those authorities. Father, I pray that we would be the type of people who honor those that are over us, that are honest in our financial dealings towards them, that we don't seek to... um, to skirt the system and, and get around the system and not having to pay what, what we owe to society. Father, I pray that we would, we would recognize that in fulfilling those obligations, we are adorning the gospel, that we are putting to, talk the, putting to rest the talk of foolish people. And God, I pray that we would honor you by how we honor those that are over us. God, I pray that that would translate even down to our employers, people that are over us at our jobs, that we would not be in that group of employees that criticizes and complains and questions. Instead, Father, I pray that we would, in the midst of our disagreement, be drawn to prayer, that we would pray for those placed over us rather than criticize. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to love those around us, that we would seek to fulfill the commands that you've given us through that attitude. God, I pray that we would constantly be mindful that Christ is returning and so that that would give us urgency in our daily life to to live faithfully like you've called us to. God, I pray that as we leave today that we would be drawn to this last verse, that we would honestly assess in our own life, we would meditate in our own life, whether we're making provision for the flesh or whether we're making provision for Christ. Father, I pray that if changes need to be made in our life, we'd be, we'd be bold enough to make those changes. We would cut off that feeding of the flesh. Father, help us to treat our flesh as dead, to reckon it dead like you've communicated to us here in this book of Romans. God, I pray that we would not feed our flesh, that we would not make provision for it. Instead, we would put on Christ. God, that we would seek Christ through his word, that we would seek Christ through accountability with believers here in our church that we would hold fast to that hope of Jesus' return we ask these things in Jesus' name Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast We trust that you've been encouraged by the word For more information about our church please visit our website at www.sovhope.org 
Again, that's www.sivehope.org.